0: Oh wait wait wait, hang on. Okay. So we'll start with my <clears throat> verbal cue of on delicious dish. Yeah, because I'm flubbing it.
1: <laughs> okay.
2: <laughs>
0: okay.
1: <clears throat> All right. Wanted to redo this one, is not it? Thank
2: you. I've wanted to be Thank on a scraps podcast for quite some time right. now, so this
1: oh, God. my
3: dream come true. <laughs> Ooh, better. <laughs> I hope you. no one gets canceled as a result of this. <laughs> <laughs>
4: I would be violating my promise. You
0: you you're both you're both very insightful and, and your comments both of you and I have learned so much from your questions.
1: Thank you Jojo, thank you Arun.
0: That was good. Okay, so and now on to the podcast.
1: Cool. All right. This is a Scrap Studio production and you are listening to Scraps by Electronic Medicines. Brought to you with our sponsors. Cortec Neuro and Certec Medical. Welcome everyone. This is going to be a long episode, but a very spicy one. As promised last week, when we released part one of Cutting Through the Crap in Bioelectronic Medicines, this week we are covering a very juicy topic in part two. A topic that will surely get the juices going for everyone from tabloids to the press to some very opinionated people in social media who are largely witnesses to the eccentricities of a certain tech billionaire who goes from being the chief twit to the chief twat when he speaks of neurotech and the sad word that he utters every time, brain computer interfaces. To ensure that we have a honest conversation, we have invited three opinionated people and I took on the role of being the pessimist and ask some very tough questions of them. And to be brutally honest, I'm not a believer in brain-computer interface as much as what they are. But that's because I'm from the school of thought that believes that bigger impact can be made in disease conditions outside the traditional neurology space. But these folks have made it their life's mission to crack the brain's electrical code and help people. And my job through this podcast is not to convey my conclusion but only to function as a postman to deliver all the information to you, our listeners, so you can form an educated opinion. So without further ado, we present to you Amy Cruz, partner at Prime Movers Lab, who is an investor in both invasive and non-invasive brain-computer interfaces, Marcus Gerhardt, and Matt Angle, CEOs of BlackRock Neurotech and Paradromics, respectively. Many of you will know these wonderful people And I can guarantee you, no one would have asked the kind of questions that we asked out of them, at least in a public forum. We grilled them very well, I hope. And I'm proud to say that the resultant steak was a very juicy bite. Here it is, the discussion in its entirety.
0: So as always, we've taken a good 15 minutes to get everybody all set up.
4: (laughs) We had a laugh though. We had a a laugh though, Jojo.
3: All the best shows, they have that entertainment act that comes out like 10 minutes before to get. Yeah. Warms up up the crowd. Yeah. Yeah.
4: That was a good warm up.
2: Definitely.
0: So
4: I did um, did get out of my cave and into my office because Matt said I I shouldn't stay in my cave.
0: Well, I'm should we kind of just dive right in? I don't want to I don't want to lose good content time. I love hanging out with you guys, but I it's taken us a long time to get everybody together and I don't want to lose you guys. Maybe if we can just start with a quick introduction of the three of you guys. And Amy, you want to go first?
2: Uh, Amy Cruz, general partner at Prime Movers Lab, which is a deep tech venture investing firm. Um, We look for breakthrough science that has the potential to impact billions of lives, which of course brain computer interfaces are one of those things. Uh, We have a particular thematic area. It's a broad firm, but we have a particular thematic area in human augmentation, uh, something that I have been working on for uh, nearly two decades now. I'm a neuroscientist by training, uh, former DARPA program manager, spent some time in the defense industry, uh, have been a co-founder at a startup, and now uh, from, uh, as I like to say, from founder to funder, uh, working in the venture capital space. Great. Thank you. And
0: Matt, how about you? As a fundee of (laughs) Founder turned funder.
3: Um, I'm Matt Engel. I'm the founder and CEO of Paradromics. We're a high data rate brain-computer interface company, and we're really excited about what brain-computer interfaces can do in terms of reframing classically hard biology problems in terms of technology so that we can build technology solutions for things like paralysis, blindness, and mental health disorders.
0: And you have a podcast.
3: Yes, the Neurotech Pub.
0: All right.
4: And Marcus. I'm Marcus, CEO and co-founder of BlackRock Neurotech, a leader in uh, brain-computer interface technology. Um, We intend to deploy our technology to have fundamental and profound impact on patients. We want to disrupt patient care as it is thought of today uh, for the 600 million patients worldwide that suffer from neurological disorders and uh, either restore function uh, or have just a profound impact on that patient population
1: that's fantastic thank you by the way my name is Arun I think I've met Amy before but I don't think we've met uh, Marcus and Matt on a call uh, before or in person so for the matter I haven't met Amy in person either so (laughs) I'm uh, so sorry
0: I took that for granted
1: don't worry don't worry it's all good uh, yeah. <laughs> signs of our times, right? Especially in a post-COVID world, I think everything yeah. kind of works that way. So the idea that I kind of had in this in mind for this one was that I will probably ask more of provocative questions, and it's only to to get the answers out, not so much the fact that I just want to kind of give that disclaimer first. Uh, so I, I'm not a mean person. I can be mean at times, but but I I don't intend to be mean. Generally
3: speaking, I'm not a mean
1: person. Usually precedes something very mean. I know, (laughs) um, but I think let's actually start off. um, What is a brain computer interface? Because that term is bandied about a lot. So I would like for not for each of you to agree saying yes, just like what Marcus said, or just like what Amy said, or just like what Matt said. But I want you guys to give your definitions of what in your perception is a brain-computer interface.
3: We've started using the term direct data interface. Uh, brain-computer interface has become such a big word that uh, it's, it's a big tent. It includes you know things that people kind of like headbands that people strap on their head, um, funny looking helmets, brain implants, stentrodes, and they all do a lot of different things. And, um, they measure different kinds of signals and sometimes it like, it can be a big field. I mean, control labs called their, uh, wristband that measured uh, muscle activity, a brain computer interface. And so, um, sometimes I, I can appreciate for people, it's difficult to, uh, to sort out. Now we've started using the term direct data interface to refer to things like I would include the Utah Array that, that, Uh, BlackRock Neurotech makes, and the Neuralink device and the Paradromics device in this category, things that can directly measure action potentials um, in brain tissue, um, especially things that can measure action potentials, you know, at a scale of hundreds of neurons or thousands of neurons. And so, yeah, when I I think I, I like to talk about direct data interfaces because I think those are the kinds of platforms that... Some of the most advanced applications, and and that have the most that will will we'll be using, and that that have the most platform value going forward. And um, yeah, I'd be happy to be challenged a little bit on this. No,
1: that's good ideas. because I think I, the, there are some interesting words that you dropped in there. We'll we'll, we'll we will pick on that uh, in a second, Matt. Uh, Marcus, do you want to go next?
4: Yeah, i'd love to uh, side fully with matt um um uh, to exclude just a lot of other companies uh from this discussion but i think uh um we can be also a little bit more encompassing and and say that brain computer interface does at the end of the day cover it all that uh, um, they've been doing giant for a
3: This is why data rate is so important. (laughs)
4: Yes. (laughs) That's why data is so important.
2: Marcus, maybe turn off your video. We're not getting your audio. Oh boy. Okay. Oh, he's gone. Wow, now we've lost Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: like a magic trick. It's like <laughs>
2: it's the ghost in the machine.
1: So Amy, while we're waiting for Marcus, I think let, let, let's actually get your version of, of what a brain computer interface is.
2: Yeah, so I, I agree with Matt that there, you know, there are direct data interfaces for the brain. I'm uh I'm a big tent brain computer interface kind of gal. Um I include Uh, Certainly things that at at least, uh, you know, sense the brain directly, I'm using air quotes directly, you know, that may be through an invasive electrode, that may be through a minimally uh, invasive uh, procedure, or that could be through an EEG or some other uh, device that's sitting on the head. The piece to me, that's actually the most important part of the BCI word, brain-computer interface, is not the brain, but it's the interface. And uh, I think that one of the things that is often forgot about, forgotten about when we talk about BCI is, is sort of what I think about, which is the reason that we are recording brain signals in the first place, which is to cause some end effect, right? And so I tend to think of brain computer interfaces in a, you know, some sort of closed loop or other interactive manner. You're you're decoding the brain signals in order to do something with them, whether that's a motor output, feed sensory input back into the brain, use a stimulator, whatever it is. So so I tend to put my it's a brain computer interface uh, hat on and say that uh, for me, that's the most, most important thing because it's actually the reason why we're decoding those signals in the first place. So now that
0: we know that you are a a promoter of the Ohio State,
2: <laughs> the Brain <Bulldogs>. Computer
0: Interface, <laughs> University of Michigan, um, maybe yeah. Marcus we can have you try one <laughs> more time. We, we, we actually
1: don't care about audience. Michigan or the state up North. I mean, it's a shit university anyway. I've put a
4: hiring stop on
1: anybody from Michigan. Ah, good for you, Marcus. <laughs> I've got you're you're actually my them. favorite person now. So that's good. Got, We're I've, talking now.
4: I've got too far many too many of them already.
1: Yeah, it's too cold anyway, and it's too miserable uh, there.
4: So it's it's that that brain computer interface can be many things, and and one day, um, uh, and I, the way I would measure it by the efficacy that we want to achieve today. And if we want a BCI to be focused on marketing applications, where we sit people in front of a TV, and if they respond positively to an advert, then that's it. Then you know you can use a BCI that's outside the body and. Uh, uses some EEG signals. But at the end of the day, if you want the efficacy to be restoring function, then today we need to be in the brain. We need to get data from the brain, from peripheral nerves, and be focused on that and drive that forward um, to the patient impact that we want to have. And that's the key thing uh, for for us when we talk about even BCI. it's, It's a great It's a great um, name and even brand at this stage because of all the hype and the excitement that's been created with somebody like Elon Musk and Neuralink uh, joining the space, but it's been around for for decades. And, you know, Amy just said it, she's been in this for 20 years. Um, Most of our engineers have been in this for 20, 30 years. Our customers, 30 years, they built their entire careers on this. Um, And for BlackRock, it is really focusing on the application and the patient impact it can have. And from our perspective today, that means data, to kind of uh, repeat Matt's point, direct data, um, lots of data from the brain so that your internet connection doesn't break down and you can actually have a proper conversation. But more importantly, that you can take that data now do something with it and have efficacy uh for patients you can either restore their function you can stop their whatever they have depression parkinsons and not just reduce it by a couple of percentage points if they take a medication for years and years but the, you stop things you you enable people again for me that that's that for blackhawk that's the bci and that right now means direct from brain direct from peripheral nerves
1: so that prompted the answers there. Prompted a follow-up question in my head, which is, I think there is a general consensus, at least between Matt and Marcus, clearly, and a bit with you, Amy, as well. And I'll come to that, maybe if uh, if you disagree with me, is that the overall what you did not say it? I'm saying it. The pollution of the word brain-computer interface to mean anything and everything at this point of time is bothering. You folks, and therefore, you prefer something that directly, kind of reads, is able to, is implanted, or it's at least able to provide high fidelity neural recordings that enable modulation in response to the signals that is being read. Is that fair to say? I, I think
4: pollution. I wouldn't is say too. it has to be implanted. I, I I wouldn't go as far as saying it has to be this or it has to be that. It, okay. It's efficacy. That is the driver that we do something meaningful with the BCI, whether it's restoring function or one day enhancing function. These are all things that I think can be the remit of a BCI. It does not have to be invasive or non-invasive. But the fact of the matter is, if you want to restore function today, you're going to have to be invasive. Companies that that, that then go out and say, oh, well, we can do this from an endovascular uh, uh, EEG, or we can go and do this from outside the brain. Um, that's just nonsense at this point. Now maybe in 20 years will be there. Um, maybe you can have an, a very specific application for a limited patient population. Okay. But to, to see BCI as something you can gather from the outside with a headband, it just, that's that's then the, the challenging thing because some people will assume, oh, all I need to do is put on a headband and I can walk again tomorrow. Well, that's not quite the case.
2: Yeah, I was just going to say, I think the <clears throat> I think it's a yes and space. Yeah. Um, and I, I think there's room for multiple BCI applications across the spectrum of how you might and how an individual might use them. And so, you know, absolutely, if you're patient focused on, you know, restoring motor function or uh, you know, driving a, a wheelchair or, you know, whatever, whatever it is, like I I don't disagree that um, the fidelity and quality of you know, the information that you're going to get out of that system is is much higher. I also think because, you know, been, been doing this a while, that there are fantastic applications of using, you know, devices that don't necessarily sit in the brain. Maybe they sit on top of the brain. Maybe they sit minimally invasively in the skull and not, you know, penetrating through the dura. Maybe they are, you know, high density EEG or other magnetic, uh, you know, other types of arrays that are... Uh, sitting on the brain for less, you know, applications that require less fidelity. Um, I would, of course, definitely draw the line and say, like, I don't think a EMG wristband is a brain-computer interface, right? Like that, you know, you, you've got me there, right? But I do think that, you know, reading reading signals, you know, with with some quality in and out of the brain, and using them for an application. I think should be, you know, included within the BCI rubric, and then we can certainly argue about the right, you know, fidelity, data flow, everything else for a particular application. You know, I don't think I need a brain-computer interface. Like, I'm, I'm just going to use something. Um, I don't mean to say this in a trivial way, but I'm going to use a simple thing. Like, I don't need a invasive brain-computer interface to like turn on lights or turn off lights or. Uh, Go to the next song in my Spotify playlist, or those kind of things. Right? I could theoretically do that with a much, much less invasive brain-computer interface that sat in headphones or a ball cap or something like that. That's still a BCI. It's still an effector measuring brain activity and causing a change uh, in an interface. So, again, living in the Big Ten.
3: Yeah, I think polluting polluting the word BCI would be too strong of language, and I think we're probably all on the same page. I mean. Uh, using different different devices for different applications makes sense. Staging devices according to what they can do and what the risk profile is, and using you know using them appropriately. It, it, this all makes sense. I think the problem where the problem occurs is that when we all use the same word to describe very different devices, it can create unclarity about which devices can do which things. Um, so for instance, I'm really excited about functional neuroinfrared spectroscopy. I'm really excited about being able to look at blood flow in the brain and do non-invasive brain image, functional brain imaging, uh, looking at oxygen consumption, blood flow with a device that could cost, I don't know, a thousandth the cost of a fMRI and could be portable and could be in every single ambulance. Uh, you could use it for triaging, you know, stroke and traumatic brain injury. Decide who needs a CAT scan, who needs an fMRI, who needs to go to the emergency room right now, <clears throat> and who can go back to watching uh, Game of Thrones.
1: <clears throat> but, cool.
3: but um, that kind of device that measures blood flow and blood oxygen doesn't have the spatial or temporal resolution to build a neuroprosthetics platform for upper arm control, for dexterous hand control. And so we need to be excited about each of the technologies, but excited about the thing that it can do. And the problem is, is that there are some companies in the space that try really hard. I mean, BlackRock, I consider to be a really good player in the space. It works directly with researchers. It's super clear about what, it device can, what its devices can and can't do, where it can help people. Um, they, they produce a lot of good informational stuff. But there are a lot of companies in the space that are selling things that can and can't do things, and they're not clear about what they can and can't do. And the problem is, it becomes like, you know, Amy is an extremely sophisticated investor, um, but there aren't many Amy's in the venture community. There are a lot more Bills, and you know, Bill is the guy who sits at three in the morning with a beer belly, watching TV, and he says, "Hey." My doctor told me that hard work and exercise are going to help me get rid of this beer belly. But there's this thing on TV at three in the morning, this infomercial. I just strap this electrical thing on my stomach. I'm going to have steel-cut abs, just like the guy on TV. It's amazing. I get everything I want without doing all the hard stuff. And that kind of messaging is what you see happening sometimes from the not as good actors, you know, in this neuroelectronics community because they're 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 picking examples of like what BlackRock devices are doing in clinics right now. And they're saying, wouldn't it be great if you could do that with out all the hard stuff? Don't go through a, you know, PMA trial for an implantable device, you know, I have a sticker and some hair gel, you know, and it's I think, I think like that kind of unclarity can really do damage to the field because it undermines people's resolution to invest in the hard stuff
0: that's actually going to deliver long-term benefit. Mm. So that's, that's the investment part of it. And, and all of you have been discussing this in a very altruistic manner that your intentions are um, benign and, and for the greater good of mankind. But as Matt just pointed out, that is not all, that's not everyone's intention, nor is it, nor is your intention the limit of how your technology will ultimately be applied. So the discoveries and advances that you're making in your technologies, yes, there's IP protection, but at at some point they're going to get out into the wild and they're going to get into the wild with some potentially bad actors who will um, capitalize on this and and in some ways will be the people who try and make all of the clickbait headlines that we hear around brain-computer interfaces and actually try and make them true. So how are you guys... Aside from intellectual property protections, how are you guys addressing the notion that eventually there will be bad actors in this space and people who want to bastardize your technologies for commercial or even nefarious purposes?
4: No, I, I- if, if if indeed there are bad actors, and I'm I, I'm not so sure about the definition of that, then um, I mean nefarious starts sounding really bad, and uh, um, and such like. And if if for example there were a company that was compromising the data, the neural data, which as far as we're concerned is the property of the individual and should be dealt with very carefully, if there are companies like that, then maybe they fall into that bad actor. I think at this stage. There are companies that are stretching the truth. There are companies that are using easy marketing ploys. And sure, there is a competitive nature to fundraising, but the whole space is growing so much that right now, rather than seeing that as a bad actor, good actor dynamic, I, I would prefer saying they have their role to play. They're great. They one, one of them is creating a lot of awareness. And we've got to see the benefit of that as well, right? Which is that as the tides rise, all boats benefit. Um, and and I think all of us do benefit, we've now got to make sure that we clarify the message for the community at large. Somebody asked me today, what do I do as CEO? And, and I realized that my main role is a translator. I've got to translate all of this hard work, Matt, that you speak about, hard science that we rely on. I've got to translate that and make it understandable to not just Bill, but a, a, a large population of people who some of which some of whom might be really concerned about what BCI may do one day, um, some of whom will 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 interpret all sorts of things into it, and I've I've got to do that job better. And so maybe we need to set up a benchmark of efficacy so that it becomes very clear when does a device really lead to a tetraplegic patient moving their arm intuitively rather than having to or communicate intuitively thinking the letter A and they and it spells the letter A or they're handwriting the letter A in their mind, and the letter A pitches up, right? That's intuitive for me. Or non-intuitively, where you're going to have to somehow train your foot to do something, then deploy an assistive technology that actually does most of the work, and now use spell, right? Well, I need to create that clarification. Otherwise, I'm giving my competitor a freebie. And yeah, I'm going to call them out on it and make life a little harder for them. That's my job. Um, But I'm not sure we we need to be quite as, as distinct and good actor, bad actor at this moment. It's more figuring out what our challenges are and they are to get this technology approved by regulatory bodies. It's convincing and, and hearing patients what they need from this technology and making sure that we deliver that. And yes, you're right. We need to convince investors of which there are a limited amount around um, and be better than others to get their capital. Uh, so that that is a dynamic that we've got to be aware of.
2: So Jojo were you suggesting medical tourism for BCI is that is that the is that the oh, nature of <laughs> all la Phil Kennedy I don't know No
0: I just I just think that there every invention has an intended purpose and then afterwards somebody comes along with the secondary application sure and that's that's going to happen here and, Yeah I mean and, yeah. That's not everybody is as well-intentioned. It's yeah. a lot
3: to lay that at the feet of the companies that are building medical devices right now. I mean, really, Agreed. that's a society, that's a regulatory question.
4: Um, but
0: we're all part of society.
4: Yeah, I, I would call you out on that, Matt. I don't I don't think we as medical device companies, if that's what you're calling us, um, can can quite say it's none of our business. Now, it's not all our responsibility, but I think we can drive some of the debate, and I think we should, um, I, I mean, I we we we've even created a board to look at exactly these questions, these ethical questions, because I, I, mean, I have an investor who says this all the time. He says, "Well, one day maybe this technology does enhancement, right?" He's part of a group that really believes this enhancement should happen. He, I think, he thinks we should not be communicating this way. We should have a VCI that downloads all this information so that we don't need to be using internet and 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 limited modes of communication. Um, and, and, Will it and, work
1: with video? No, I'm kidding.
4: <laughs> yeah, just not over Zoom. Um, but but and and I and I and I I think we've got to recognize there's these different groups of individuals that think forward, think uh, very innovatively about where this technology could go one day. I think it is our responsibility as part of society to ask the question. I don't think it's our responsibility to answer them all, but definitely to ask the questions and say what we are building today. May no will in fact already does today create enhancement. I've got a tetraplegic patient who is faster at operating something than his able-bodied partners in the lab.
1: That's enhancement. Yeah. yeah. No. The, 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 yeah. Go for it, Amy. Go
2: no. No. I was. I was just going to say you hit on a really, really important point. So I would. I wanted to make two two comments. One was that um, I. I don't. So first of all I think the neuroethics or the ethics component is is huge and I think the community is engaging in that now both the individual companies and sort of the community at large through Brainmind and some other organizations that you know I'm part of and and have been participating in these these ethics discussions so I think I think the larger community is aware of them and I think there's a, a active you know conversation that's ongoing um I do think that in the near term, I don't think you will see elective uses of invasive brain-computer interfaces for non-medical purposes. I, I just don't. I don't predict that happening in the shortest term. Um, that said, I think Marcus raises an, an excellent point around enhancement, which is like one of my favorite topics, um, and I think. We don't even know what people are going to be able to do with brain computer interfaces once a substantial number of fantastic humans have them implanted in their brains. I just I think I think we're just at the very tip top. Right, We are so focused on restoring function and restoring motor and all these things. I have no idea. I have no idea what brilliance, Right, I, I call it unlocking the cognitive capacity of millions of individuals. No idea what's gonna happen in those situations. And so you could get into a place where enough individuals that um, maybe ha- have Im- implanted them for medical conditions find themselves enhanced in a way that might convince other able-bodied individuals or, or or folks you know like that to implant them. So I, I, uh, I sort of share the enhancement vision of the future, but think that at least in the short term, I think we have some time to sort through uh, some of the ethical issues that are in front of us. And I think the community is engaged in that now.
1: So that actually brings up an interesting question about valuation um, as well, right? Because If you look at the overall field of of whatever, BCI, neurotechnology, et cetera, I think among all the companies that are out there, and this is just me, I don't work in the BCI area, but just looking at all the data that's coming out in terms of valuations, et cetera, the companies that are working in the BCI space, frankly, have much more insane valuations compared to say, a valuation from, I don't know, say, I'm, I'm just going to pick for obvious lack of a better nerve target, a vagus nerve treatment for, I don't or or, or rather a, a, an obstructive sleep apnea treatment. I have a strong
3: disagreement with this. Go point. on. They have higher valuations relative to companies at those same stages, but insane, absolutely not. But why because is that? The, why, why,
1: why do you think that is actually higher valuation?
3: The total addressable market for next generation brain, next generation brain computer interfaces is massive. It's unfathomably large. This is like saying like I don't really understand this Google business. It's fundamentally an advertising business. But my uncle owns an advertising firm, and the other day, you know, like he he appraised the value of his advertising agency at only one and a half million dollars. Like it's that it's that. Much of a gap. Like these little medical devices are slow. Generally speaking, medical device companies are slow. They address pretty small markets. And and when they sell, they sell for multiples that are like so abysmal that they're almost unbackable by venture backing. This like medical device, like traditional. Medical device companies are not good comparables for brain-computer interface companies. Like brain-computer interface companies are like Qualcomm or Intel. They're a platform on which hundreds of billions of dollars of business will be built in the next decade. Um, so I think it's very short-sighted to try to look at a like sleep apnea device and and consider that a, a you know why is Neuralink worth more than a sleep apnea device? Uh, that's like. I think that that's not a good comp.
0: Not everybody snores, but everybody has a brain. Theoretically, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so, And and the scope of mental the
3: scope of mental health, you know, is massive. And and mental health conditions are only going to get more prevalent as we live long.
1: But okay, so so um and and with Amy on on the on the line as well, I think it'll be important to just talk this through. I'm just trying to make this easy yeah. for people to understand. And as I said, I'm not trying to be mean here, Matt. So apologies if it comes across like that. But no, I, I love it. No, you're I, asking uh, great. Uh, but but exactly really, I, 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 think, I think, so now we're actually talking about specific medical use cases with a specific clinical indication in mind. Mm-hmm. And at this point of time, we are targeting paraplegic, tetraplegics, uh, and a whole host of other people who are letting to communicate. So, And then we also had a number that Marcus kind of threw out at the beginning, which was around, was it 60 million or 600 million uh, a number of people that you that you kind of said, mentioned at the very beginning, Marcus, but that number that you people who are actually who require an immediate medical need to augment slash enhance their ability to communicate to the external world does not match the wider number of people who may or may not necessarily want an invasive or necessarily a, a brain-computer interface, right? So how do you justify that leap? in valuation
2: so so i'll i'll talk about this because i have to justify all the things i do because of course we have investors and you have to tell them why you're doing what you're doing i i i see it as some of the parallels that you see in drug development there are a lot of there are a lot of uh, pharma companies that go after small indications first maybe yeah. a rare disorder yeah. that kind of thing get get through the regulatory hurdles get to market And then, you know, kind of the land and expand. Mm -hmm. I think all of these BCI technologies, um, you know, direct data interface uh, technologies and things like that, I I believe we're on a land and expand uh, journey here. I think we need to land and address the greatest unmet needs first, of which there are, I think, sufficient patient numbers to support a robust, you know, uh, brain computer and face company uh, uh, ecosystem and you know specifically again talking about those with the high uh, data rate and and um you know high input output kind of things and i think it is it is at least e- easy for me maybe it's because i have that vocabulary and i have i maybe i've been doing this translation for a while right it it is easy for me to explain how that builds into a platform technology that's that's quite revolutionary in the context of you know I think something that we haven't seen before in a in a medical device space and so this is you know it's it is it's a bit edgy right because you know we're kind of uh, wanting to have the uh, first beachhead certainly be something uh, with clinical value and efficacy and you know regulatory approvals and reimbursement and all those things and at the same time you're You're uh, sketching a story um mm. that is about kind of like the future of humanity, yeah. right? And you know that's how you get the big numbers,
4: yeah and, and Anna, I, 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 I I don't think Matt took issue with you uh, you know presenting that way, but but I'll go the other direction and say, not only are we not uh, valued too highly, but we're substantially undervalued if you think about where this can go. Um, now that's that, that all these things still need to come together and valuation is always a matter of what the other side thinks too and is willing to pay right so we just got to keep that one in mind but um the, to give you a sense of that platform argument that matt just made um where this is not just a product right and and we used i think the the, the vagus nerve as an as a as an example and that's that's product specific one problem One issue, one solution, one patient population. You can't now extrapolate that and deploy that very same solution to 100 other areas. You may to one or two ancillary areas. Um, then we started talking vagal nerve, by the, uh, sorry, sleep apnea, but there, there is a company out there that's valued quite extensively uh, in the $5 billion uh, range now. So I, th- I think people are starting to realize- Which is
1: atrocious in itself, by the way, and we did. I, I did address that, although Jojo was a bit coy in addressing it in our <laughs> no, sleep apnea episode, I did address that head on.
4: But, but uh, if we let's take an example, and, and I can take one that's not necessarily um, a focus of, of, of many other players, but hearing loss. Take hearing loss as a patient population. Um, Hearing loss is 430 million people worldwide when you consider all levels of hearing loss. In fact, it involves and includes just about every male after a certain age because we start losing frequencies very, very quickly. Um, Then you rattle that down to maybe uh, 50 million patients who could benefit from a hearing implant. And then you rattle it down even further, as Amy said, to sort of beachhead populations that today have no other choice. That's our core focus. We always focus um, in the second step. The first step is always a very large patient population. The second step is a beachhead, clear beachhead population that has no other choice. Well, that's actually about 500,000 people who cannot take cochlear implants, a really cool technology about 15, 20 years old that now is starting to have major impact, $3.5 billion market cap, four or five companies in that space. But there's 500,000 people in in the US and Europe that cannot take a cochlear implant. So that's a clear patient population, means they have no other choice. So if we pitch up with a slightly invasive or more invasive technology, chances are they'll want it, right? But now think into the future and and assume a couple of things. One, that technology allows the restoration of full normal hearing, not just roboticized voice as cochlear implant does, I got a great video for you. At some stage, I'll, I'll, I'm happy to send you where you hear how cochlear implant patients hear. It's it's like this ah, very, very roboticized uh, version. And when they're in a restaurant, it goes down to ah, 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 with nothing <laughs> being understood because there's now a restaurant in the background as well. It's just we, we think there's technologies there helping cochlear implant patients. really, it's not great. You and I would not accept it. Um, And and now let's assume for a moment that the technology can restore normal hearing. You can hear Bach, you can hear Mozart, okay? And the device going from something like, you know, invasive that you're really worried about to something that's a slit behind your ear and sits there, is minimally invasive, um, and you now start falling into pacemaker territory, which is today, by the way, a prophylactic When it started, right, it was a seven-hour surgery and it killed the first pig and the first human lived for seven hours longer. Today, it's a prophylactic. People get pacemakers put in to answer a potential need. That's how much we've accepted it there. So for a moment, assume that like the 300,000 people who've got a cochlear implant, you and I start being much more okay with a little slit behind the ear. Would you and I not want to say, you know what, I'm starting not to hear my kids anymore. Um, we're not, we we, we can't hear our wife. Well, maybe that's not a great example, but we can't hear our kids anymore. Um, Wouldn't we take into account a little slit behind the ear, a one hour walk-in, walk-out device that lets us hear normally, lets us hear Bach again, which I haven't been able to hear for for years anymore properly in the right frequencies. Would you not go for it? Now we're talking about 430 million people. That's just, oh, and, and that you can extrapolate from hearing to just about any um application. And and that's where I, I'm completely on board with Matt, that the valuations are not too high. I think we haven't understood where this is going to go. Yeah.
3: I think it's and- also the case that you you it's easy to underestimate the size of the markets if you look at where the technology, you know, where the technology is uh today. And um and you look at like people's willingness to undergo surgery today or potentially past markets that didn't have good product market fit from the beginning. So for instance, auditory is a great example. Auditory brain implant auditory uh uh brain implants uh are not as good as cochlear implants today, just just right now. And so yeah, of course, not many people would want them. Um in the same sense that uh Sight, a uh vision company, uh had a they had a retinal stimulator with about 60 pixels of vision and they failed. And I think a lot of people have said, oh, well, you know, vision implants not going to work. Second sight failed. But yeah, I mean, my kids could tell you that 60 pixels, isn't enough vision to live your life. Like that, that they didn't have, they didn't really have a product market fit. They didn't have the technical capabilities to match the demands of the market. So of course they didn't have massive commercial, uh, Deployment, um, even things that work really well and have done fairly well, like deep brain stimulators, um, have certain market dynamics right now where neurologists are not initially willing to refer people with essential tremor or Parkinson's to a neurosurgeon for uh, DBS implantation because there are a lot of anti- up, uh, there are a lot of uh, drugs for Parkinson's or essential tremor that people could take before they get that surgery. And so they tend to run through a course of medications before that. Neuropace is the same kind of story. Uh, There are a lot of anti-epilepsy medications that a person can take before they undergo surgery. And so, yeah, it's like, if we look, there are past examples of devices not getting the kind of traction you might want, or there are examples of capabilities of old generation devices that aren't serving the level of need that patients have, but that doesn't mean that you couldn't have a very robust commercial rollout if you actually had product market fit because these medical needs are real and CMS and payers will pay, you know, DBS is reimbursed at 20, 30 K per device. Like there's need, there there is payment that can be had. Um, If you have good product market fit, like that there will be very large markets.
2: Yeah, I'd like to make two comments about that. One is one is something in the DBS market, and and I think um, I don't know if your listeners know, but certainly we on the call know that there isn't great, um, there isn't yet very substantial market penetration of DBS devices into individuals with parkinson's right like the number of people that could have a DBS implant and the number of people that have them is is um is not matched right and i have a colleague actually he's a he's a technologist like he is he is up to date on everything and he, he had early onset parkinson's and the last time i saw him his his tremor was um you know was present and i asked him i said because I know him so well, right, I was able to say, like, have you thought about a deep brain stimulator, you know, and he said, I'm waiting for the better version, right, I'm waiting for, like, V3, you know, so that, like, I kind of want the input output, I kind of want, like, he, he knew enough to know that he didn't want, like, V1, (laughs) he wanted, like, V4, three or four, right? And I think that's really interesting because like he is what I would consider like a really educated consumer. He's a technologist, you know, we've done uh, cool studies together and stuff like that. And, And so it made me think about that as well in terms of where we are in the market. I think most people aren't aware of how long folks have been working on BCIs Right And so I do think we're actually much closer to V3 and V4 uh, in brain computer interfaces right now um, than maybe deep brain stimulation was when when it started, right? And so I think yeah. um, I think that's a really you know critical you know critical thing to think about not, um, not
3: only that, but good market segmentation. Um, yeah, if you target the right market, you target unmet medical needs, you don't have the same kind of adoption barriers. Uh, that you might, if you're competing with a bunch of crappy drugs.
2: Right. Yeah. And that that was the other thing I wanted to say. And, and you know, this is something that I've said before in different contexts. Like, I think where we're headed with, and I'm gonna I'm going to broaden the tent even a little bit more here and say where we're headed with neurostimulation, where we're headed with brain-computer interfaces, where we're headed with peripheral nerve stimulation, I think we're going to give drugs a run for their money. Like I, I am a, ve- you want to get, you want to get into a place where like the market and the valuations flip is when you like beat the pants off the drugs and it starts becoming the drugs, uh, either maybe a few drugs or something is the first line of defense. And then you're. You're starting to think about the brain, which I, you know, believe we're in a space now where we think about the brain as a network, right? We're we are thinking about it as a connected system, not a, you know, gelatinous glob that we can, you know, throw pharmaceuticals at and have them, you know, work systemically. Uh, you know, you know, uh, randomly at times uh, on different structures. And so I think because of what we've learned in neuroscience, because of where we're at right now, we, it behooves us to go in and treat, um, you know, treat the brain regions and networks uh, with as much precision as possible. And I think you're going to get that precision from neurostimulation, Uh, direct data interfaces with the brain, uh, these types of things, and not uh, pharmaceuticals?
1: Yeah, I think that actually drives a very interesting question, especially from a provider slash commercialization perspective. And I think this BlackRock has been through this for years now. And I think, Marcus, maybe you can take it and then then Matt and Amy can join in, which is compared to a traditional, I'm just going to take a traditional neuromodulation, call it whatever. I I don't care what you call it, right? Which is basically implanted and forget it for most part, except for when the patient comes back to the clinic to change the parameters and then they go away if everything works. And then they show up again in six months or a year's time over a period of like seven to 10 years, depending on how long your battery lasts, right? Compare that to a To to a a BCI, and we spoke with Ian Burkhart in in one of our earlier episodes as well. So, and Ian kind of walked us through how intense some of those training sessions were to help him think that through. So, there is an aspect of post implant care and also learning that is very different from what you would classify to be a traditional neuromodulation uh, business in terms of kind of commercialization. And this is very interesting because this is a very, it offers chances of, I don't know, revenue generation opportunities mm. plus other interesting areas that could enhance as well as on the flip side, kind of, kind of make it into a bad thing when things go wrong in terms of how high the cost can go, et cetera. So that is something that the brain computer interface or whatever you want to call it. Did you call it data computer? Interface? I forget what you call it, Matt, but this thing- direct data interface. Direct data interface. Okay. Thank you. Um, so this is something that's unique, I think, to this particular area of neuromodulation. How are you folks looking at it? Because that is something that people can actually say, look, it's going to be very intense. And yes, but at the end of it, whoever is going to be paying for it, and Ian brought up this thing, that his insurance stopped paying for it at some particular point of time. So he had to actually have the interface out, right? So how are you folks thinking about this model right now and where you think the model should probably go to and what steps are you taking for it?
4: Yeah. I mean, first of all, the recognition that, uh, you know, a BCI is a system and it starts much earlier than we've even defined here and, and doesn't end until much later is 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 critical. That, for example, you need to be thinking about the surgery and how that's going to happen and in one of our applications we spent i think 18 months to make sure that it fit in with the neurosurgeon or ant uh, approach that existed today so it would be the same time and no longer and use the same instruments and no additional instruments so that you can kind of have that lack of barrier to adoption so the recognition that it's 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 uh, a system and and maybe also a bit more complicated than just one technology is is a great one, and um, Ian is absolutely right. Training is one part. I spoke to him this morning about exactly that, and 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 having him contribute to various groups and how to improve that training. We also shouldn't forget what Amy said, which is, you know, some of this stuff has been happening for quite a while. It's not as if we picked up BCI last week, and many people have been working on this for for some time. If we if we draw a parallel, maybe, and this is what investors love doing, right? To other big platform plays. Well, a bigger platform play was mobile phone. Okay, And it's actually not too dissimilar from what we're talking about here. Well, the first mobile phone wasn't, in fact, Motorola. It was a company called Zugtelefonie AG, a German company that put phones in trains in the 20s. Um, I know I why they didn't
1: succeed. It's because of the name. Uh,
4: <laughs> potentially. <laughs> or that then the Germans decided to couple, fight a couple of world wars. But um, th- that, that telephony moment was like 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Um, and then your Motorola was, I'd say four or five years ago was Matt Nagel, something like that was sort of BCI taking that next step of saying it is possible. It is possible to have this effect. Um, and so a lot of this stuff has been worked on, but some of it has been one-off and now we're getting to the second and the third. So while Ian speaks about how hard this training was for him, right. And we had him involved in controlling an effector that I can't speak of uh, publicly yet. And it took him nine months. And after nine months, the performance was pretty good. And I'd say close to able-bodied. But in the first instance, he did something that you know most people would have thought, uh-oh, that, that, that's a safety issue. Well, we now had the second BCI pioneer within minutes, because he could draw on algorithms that Ian had helped build. Within minutes, he was actually affecting the, the third-party item quite well. Within three weeks, he was faster than any able-bodied person in the lab. You went from nine months of training down to intuitively, within minutes, it kind of working. Within three weeks, it working perfectly. That's from Pioneer 1 to Pioneer 2. Imagine where we're going to be with Pioneer 10. So yes, there is complexity, but also appreciate where have we worked on, where have we not worked on. We've not worked on optimizing the algorithms, on optimizing the use of the data. In the next five years, we are going to do so much there um, that that will just boggle people's minds. Um, And so I I think uh, it just be important to to recognize in terms of the, the payer and convincing those. Yeah, that's part and parcel of what Matt and I and other companies are going to have to do. The economics of what we do needs to be established and well founded. And from individuals being willing to pay for something that changes their lives. And I have lists and lists of tetraplegic patients who are fed up that they have no privacy in their lives anymore. They send their their care workers out of the room one day, sorry, one hour a day, because for one hour, they want to communicate their thoughts privately. Because the only way they can do it today is through an open, you know, some kind of device, eye tracker and or phone. It's all public. There is no privacy. And, and the number of patients I have calling and talking to us saying, can you give me something so that I have my privacy back? Can you give me something that increases my independence? My sense is we'll have payers outside of the insurance realm that will pay, early adopters. I mean, how many people afforded that first Motorola phone? Do you know how much it cost? It was high-end, high-wealth individuals who could have this thing in their car, but that's where it started. Today, how many people can afford a phone and how what a multiple billion dollar industry it is, right? So I think, yes, it is part of Matt and my responsibility, and others to create that uh, commercial environment and ensure it's there. But uh, I have no doubt, once the efficacy is there, once you show the reward, it's risk and reward, right? And what we have to do, I think, is show that fundamental reward, which with personalized medicine, and, and totally on board with Amy, by the way, that's what is happening here. This is personalized medicine as it was conceived of, but never executed. Here it is. It's not a pharmaceutical, which is a, or pharma. A Band-Aid, oh, let's cover this one thing on every single human being, but it's personalized medication in its ideal form. You have an epilepsy seizure somewhere over here and then somewhere over there. Well, let's get to that and not deploy a, a, a drug that is, as a side effect, going to numb this part, reduce that part, and 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 create create an addiction maybe on top of it. Oh, fantastic. We add opioid addictions on top of it. Oh, and your only other option, by the way, if you don't want that, so like if you want to actually have kids or be able to do what you're passionate about or drive a car, uh, we're going to have to cut a piece out of your brain and you might lose the function to speak. What kind of choice is that? So I I very much uh, applaud Amy there for being very opinionated on where this is going, but that is what this is. This is personalized medicine in the ideal form.
0: So- I want to make sure that we get this in because there's especially we do have a fair amount of lay audience. um, And and I want to make sure we've established what is a BCI, what's in, what's out. Paradromics is represented here. BlackRock is represented here. I I see you guys around the country and around the world and you're very friendly. Um, You're seemingly competitors. But you're very supportive of each other. What are the differences between BlackRock and Paradromics technologies? Go
1: for it,
3: man. You can start. <laughs> okay. So we have we have Because benefit- only because Marcus
1: yeah. went first last yeah. time. No, I'm kidding.
3: We we have the benefit of coming after, you know, two decades of pioneering Utah ray work. And so, you know, we had the benefit of seeing some of the phenomenal successes that the Utah Ray has had in the clinic and and also seeing like all right, well, if you were going to go back and do this over again, what kinds of things would you change? And so, you know, we think, we actually think the form factor of the Utah array is a very good one um, arrays of micro needles. Um, it lends itself to kind of robust construction. We've made some what we consider to be material uh, upgrades on the system. We're using solid platinum iridium wires. Um, they're very robust, last a long time. Um, upgrades to the coating so that the device can last for. long time in the body. Um, We have active electronics in the device. Um, One of the things that having active electronics in a device like that does is that it allows you to multiplex, which uh, makes the device more scalable. Um, If you have a single single electrode to single wire, you can have kind of, you kind of have end up with a little bit of a cabling problem if you try to expand it to significantly higher channel count. If you have multiplexing, you can keep a very thin wire and and just keep adding channels to the module as your uh, density capabilities get higher. And so, you know, where we have gone with this is that we've pushed to build a device that can have a longer total implantation lifetime, just due to different material selection, and then have a higher possible data rate um, due to higher channel count. And okay, I will contrast. Like- I'd really quickly contrast that not only to Utah, but just to pick on Neuralink for a second, um, because everyone likes to pick on Neuralink. I feel like Neuralink looked at the success of the Utah array and took all the wrong... I think they just didn't learn the lesson. So like one of the things that I would fix right away about the Utah array is I would change the coding from perylene C, which is a plastic, to something more robust. Neuralink kind of doubled down on that and made their threads out of uh, thin film polymers uh, and use thin film metals, and you know those devices. Like they were published by Vanessa Tosa and, and Lauren Franks ten years ago. Their lifetimes are known. You can't. It's like there's only so much you can do to make those last longer. So in some sense, they kind of went down the wrong. I think the wrong path. Not learning from all of the kind of work that we've done over the last twenty years, and um, building a device that's ultimately not going to be as even, in my opinion, as durable as the Utah array is right now.
0: Yeah. I do just want to clarify one quick thing for the audience is that when you say coding, especially because you're simultaneously discussing data, which could be mm-hmm. seen as computer. Oh, C-O-A-T-I-N-G. And, the, the and so the materials coat, right?
3: like like the clear coat that that people try to upsell you True on coat. when you when you buy your car. <laughs> uh, yeah. electrodes, in order like because the electrodes carry electrical signals, so you have to insulate them from the body. And so you put a coding, coating, C O A T-I-N-G. On the electrode, and it allows it to, like, it allows it to be protected from the environment. But depending on the different material you choose for the coating, it can last more or less time.
0: Yeah, just wanted to to pull that out there, and and then let markets go.
4: Yeah, I, I think um, you know, it's it's my answer is driven a little bit by disruptive technology, which I've been involved in all my life, and when I've seen people. Um, present disruptive technology as dismissing everything that's gone before, I, I've rarely seen it succeed. And I don't frankly understand the approach. And I I, I mean, I'm not going to tell Elon Musk how to do public uh, uh, messaging because he, uh, his awareness and brand is, is miles away from where I am. So he, he, I guess, knows what he's doing most of the time. But I don't understand why that had to dismiss everything that went before. Instead of just focusing on we need better, we need more, and we've got to have huge impact, which I think would have been received just as well. And instead, it was dismissive. And, and I think, yes, Matt is right. They missed the boat on a lot of good things. For me, disruptive technology is when you accept the platform, you learn the lessons, and you move on faster and quicker, and, and maybe you leapfrog. And I think Matt Matt's company has taken that leapfrog approach and said, what can we learn? Now, what can we innovate on top of that? and make even better. Um, and, you know, we're, we're doing the same. We're, we're looking at additional electrodes. I mean, we've already said that the Utah array may not be the technology for every application. So I've got to look and make sure that I have other electrode solutions. If I want to provide an, an application across the brain um, and provide patient care for a neurological disorder that is across the brain, the Utah array is not going to provide that solution. It's a microelectrode in one area. Um, I need to have an electrode that can go across the brain. So from our perspective, um, disruptive innovation has been about recognizing where we learned lessons and, um, and then trying out other things and adding to the portfolio and adding new technologies. I can't do all of that. BlackRock cannot do all of that single-handedly. So the more people build on top and try other things perfect, this approach or or drive that. If if tomorrow we find out the graphene as a material is the answer to everything. Well, fantastic. And then we stick that on top of the platform, and that's you know, what we'll use. And that, and then, and then I think we all gain. So it's it's driven a little bit um, by how do you look at innovation technology and also the recognition that is given to everybody who is who has contributed to it? What BlackRock does today might be quite phenomenal for people, but you know it wouldn't be where it is today without, I don't know how many researchers researching this, from Dick Norman who came up with the Utah Ray architecture, by the way, for peripheral nerve manipulation in voice originally, um, to John Donahue who then took it into the brain and said, why don't we use it here? To hundreds and thousands of neuroscience researchers and several centers, lots of government funding, by the way, on top of it, just all bringing us to this point to show Not just that this works once, not just a Mars mission or a moon landing. We've had lots and lots of moon landing moments now. But actually, now the 32 patient, 30,000 patient days, this is starting to look like very solid, reliable technology. Let's go put that into applications, have humans benefit from it while we do the next innovation. So, so Paradigmics for me is that next innovation in a certain field. Um, Some of the other companies in this space, are, are trying to find their way. they don't know who they are. Um, they're, 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 they're criticizing things around them instead of building on top of what there is and seeing that look, you know what we could really use is phenomenally improved wireless communication methods. Is a fantastic miniaturized implantable electronic set is a maybe another material for an electrode that can go right across the vein and be chronic right? because silicone just won't do the trick. What are we gonna, what are we going to find? because today's state of technology is still 30 40 years old you look at epilepsy and the companies that Matt alluded to earlier they're relying on 30 40 year old technology I mean how's that ever going to do the trick so let's build on top of that and and see what else we can build on it and and that's where I see pyodomics being um, uh, we're, we're lucky enough to have a platform and a system that is now very reliable that we can expand on and you know we look at, at the coating uh, as well. Um, and we look at the coding to improve our algorithms. Um, uh, and, and if competitors are focused on that, and Ben does that at, at Precision Neuroscience, there's deep respect for what has gone before and now how to learn lessons and improve on that. Um, and, uh, but you know that's, that's for each of them to find out. I don't know how, how many millions of dollars have been spent on realizing that polyamide has enormous ingress issue. Well, Matt could have told you that. I could have told you that. And I'm not a technologist. And my entire BlackRock team could have told you that, but each to their own.
3: Yeah. There's yeah. another kind of innovation, too, that I want to highlight. And actually, I think just I want to say something nice about BlackRock again. Like they've done a really good job. There's building there's like building the better mousetrap and improving your platform. But there's also application innovation, which is to say, like, when you have a platform that's ready to go and has an approval and, and you know it's safe, like partnering with. People around the world who are the best at their thing and the best in their vertical, and then showing that it can all the different things that it can do. And I think that you, you know, for this to be a very robust neurotech ecosystem, you want both kinds of innovation happening simultaneously. You want the kind of tool makers always building kind of the better, higher density, longer lasting, less invasive devices. And then you want the tool users going out and, um, hopping into new labs that are studying treatment resistant depression schizophrenia like some of these places where we have massively unmet needs and then saying like okay like let's get that proof of concept let's get that proof of concept with with a platform that's working and let's show that we can establish clinical benefits because then that lets you again kind of build out and and help more people
2: so and and I just want to to add to that and say, using the mobile phone analogy, uh, right? You know, there are lots of accessories now that go with your mobile phone, right? There are lots of mm-hmm. apps that go with your mobile phone, right? The the phone itself, when it branched off from just being a, a telephonic phone call, right, into a data exchange, which what we're talking about now, right? the entire ecosystem started to build up around it and it's kind of this you know maybe jokingly calling it like this full stack of of neurotech right everything from the hardware the tools the applications the peripherals the i again just want to emphasize that i don't think We've even scratched the surface of like what happens when you combine a brain computer interface, either invasive or non-invasive, and augmented reality or virtual reality, or, you know, some other type of effector that we haven't even thought of yet. And so, um, you know, kind of want to double down on that mobile phone analogy saying, like, we really are at the point of getting those first phones that, you know, we can make phone calls with and now that we have the 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 foresight of where that ended up and the type of data that was you know accessible through those what's ahead of us
3: that's a great point like this integration has become such an important thing you have you know the internet of things for a while everyone was calling it internet of things but now it's so obvious that there's not even a word for it the idea that you can (laughs) use your phone to interface with your nest the idea that you know bluetooth headphones are like by default compatible with your phone um that you have this ecosystem of connected devices and the brain will i mean the brain will be from a technical standpoint as connectable to the ecosystem of all other devices uh, as anything else yeah
0: i, I yep. find and it incredibly of- frustrating when there's something that that i want to control that can't be done through my phone <laughs> i mean it's it's become that far to the other direction yeah. and i think that's what you guys have all demonstrated here is one of the reasons I really love working in this space is that you have altruistic missions that you're making incredible progress in developing outstanding technologies. And every day there are new discoveries, but you also maintain this admirable, respectful, and kind interaction with each other, which I don't think regular tech has a lot of that. There's not a lot of um, support for each other. It's really a lot more cutthroat. Where this has, um, it still has a family feel to it. This whole R space of neurotechnology still feels like a family.
4: I, I, you know, I always I, I it it a a to, it, I liken it a little bit to I liken it a little bit to people who do sort of uh, uh, Iron Man and, and the kind of and it's, and it's a or, or people <laughs> who've been uh, slogging through stuff for years and years. You know, it's it's kind of also the effect of getting drunk together. Um, Or having worked on a a big (laughs) academic thing for years and years, it's a lot of hard work, and nobody really respects you one iota along the way. (laughs) And then at the end, maybe you get a little bit of recognition, but you went through it together. And and I mean that's a little bit this industry. I mean we preempted it even ten years ago to some extent. And when we came out ten years ago and created Blackrock, I mean people thought we were we were off our heads. And and the only thing I could point to was the pacemaker. I didn't even have a brain implant. DPS right. was only just starting. Mm-hmm. I could point to the pacemaker to try and make some of the arguments we make now. But now we are so much more articulate about making these arguments because there are some examples we can point to. Even, even Elon Musk, right? I'll give him credit here, where we can point to Tesla. I, I, how often do I say, look, when you were asked so and so many years ago to consider an electric vehicle company, you all said, no, not possible. We've got all these gas stations the world over network. They're going to be against it. And, and it won't work, and this, and we've had some electric vehicles tried in the 30s and then in the 50s. and then, No, 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 no. Everybody came up with reasons why this would not work. He pushed ahead, he got it done. And similarly, 10 and 20 years ago, people would say, this will not work. About the UTRA, they said, it won't last. Well, now it's lasted for eight years in a human, 10 years in a non-human payment. Oh, you won't get the data, so you won't have the efficacy. You'll prove it in one thing, but not in many. Now we've proven it in five, six, seven different. It's just We've managed to break that down. And in some ways, while I appreciate those stories are particular to Bradcock, the whole neuroscience community has been in this together, trying to push that forward. Amy, you've been in government, you've, you've provided the funding in DARPA. And look, DARPA doesn't get the best uh, uh, brand from a lot of people within the community either. And I'm, I'm sure at times you felt like the enemy and not necessarily the friend and the partner, but we were in it together. And we yeah. are here today because of all of that effort that went before. And for the first time, some people and increasingly people are starting to realize where this can go, what enormous impact, beneficial impact this can have on human beings. There's also fear about what negative things it could bring. We're, we're gonna have to help with that a little bit. Um, but my my closing point on that would just be to challenge Matt that the two of us and, and others here have to continue working harder to make sure that it isn't just the good guys work here and then we lose out because others take tactics and measures that we, we don't keep pace with, right? We, we've got to do just as good a job as anybody else out there to communicate the message. In a, in a couple of weeks' time, who knows? Some of those perceived bad actors might even team up. One might acquire the other. Um, and and then what, right? You're, you're starting to create a first mover with a lot of volume and a lot of capacity. This is not a lot just of about voice. A it's about adoption. We've got to get it all right and uh, And so, yeah, my challenge to Matt is, we we're gonna to have to continue working as hard as we have for the last ten years for a while on yeah, and that- and
1: and sincerely, I think we hope that this whatever discussion that we have uh, that'll come out as an episode uh, with a little bit of embellishment on our side uh, <laughs> will basically um, kind of pay a little bit more credence to what you guys are building, right? Because I think part of why I was asking jerky questions was because, I think people tend to ask that, and I think it's important to ask that head on, I think because most of the, at least the ones that I see on LinkedIn, and I haven't been to any recent conferences in the last kind of couple of years, uh, it's conferences have become very lovey-dovey and unfortunately that's not how I like things. Uh, no, they're not. I mean, they're much, they were much more mean than a few years ago. Um, uh, not anymore if people don't challenge each other, uh, Exactly. Show me one conference, Jojo. We'll talk offline. No, well, I think anyway. the thing that
3: I think the thing that I really want to challenge, I'll challenge, is I think that there's a notion that um, whether it's strategics or venture investors or or kind of adjacent stakeholders that there's this that they should wait on the sidelines and not get involved in BCI right away, um, and I think that that is rapidly becoming outdated. I think that there are, and it's, Marcus gave the perfect analogy, Tesla. There were the kind of, it's sort of the enemy of innovation are the, oh, that never worked. Or, oh, there are structural reasons why, like when you know that it's fucking possible, you know, it would help tons of people. It would be good for everyone. And then you have the willy Winers who are just like, well, you know, Um, and, and electric cars were perfect. Like, and the thing was, is that there weren't permissive conditions for electric vehicles to be uh, successful up until battery technology hit a certain point. But even after battery technology could do it, there were still these kind of whiny pessimists who were stuck in a, in a model, in their mental model that was outdated. Um, and then they never updated it. And uh and it mm. took someone like Elon, who didn't give a shit what they thought and had the capital and just did it. To make it happen, um, because he recognized that the the conditions on the ground had changed, and um, you know the bottom up considerations, like you know the amount of energy that you can store in a battery, how reliable the batteries are, also the top down considerations that oh you could never get someone to do this or people would never do that. Well, it turns out that those those priors were wrong. People wanted electric cars, and that, and there were a critical number of people who could deal with the range limitations. And, and actually, charging stations went up much faster than anyone thought. And BCI is in a similar place right now, which is that um, all of the technology that's necessary to build next-generation, you know, BCI therapies exists, um, and we can look and see, you know, thanks to especially BlackRock Neurotech, we can look and see that these applications have been demonstrated in the clinic, the application risk has gone to zero because there is a patient at Stanford who can handwrite at 18 words per minute using his mind. Um, that exists. There is a patient that went into uh, UCSF with treatment-resistant depression and left with a closed-loop neuromodulation therapy for depression. Those things exist. You know, Maybe it was the case 20 years ago that the decoding problem was an issue. Um, Like take, for instance, the Utah Ray, it was perfected in the early 90s. That was the AI winter. It happened, you know, like population decoding happened to come along during a time when uh, AI was not that developed, machine learning was not that developed, and computational resources were sparse. But that's not the world that we live in today. Today, there's a surplus of edge computing, and there are powerful machine learning models that, like, when I explain our decoding needs to, like, someone with an ML background, they're like, this is fucking trivial. I could run this on like my cell phone from last year without, and still be doing Facebook. So it's just like, we've hit that point, the same way that Tesla hit that point where the, the, the bottom up considerations have changed. We were past the threshold. We've like, we can have escape velocity. And I think some of the top down assumptions about what will or won't go with healthcare markets were based on devices that sucked. And and for patient populations that had optionality. But good staging of these uh <laughs> good staging of these products in healthcare markets yeah. will will upend that. On,
4: yeah. on that note, just let me add very briefly, I, I was asked recently how I would beat down on the competition. And I said I don't, and I don't need to because we're all needed in this field to have the impact we need to. The only thing I beat down on is complacency and accepting the status quo. And that goes right to the heart of what you just said, Matt, which is we've got to pull in other partners, and and we're we're going to announce relatively soon a partnership with what most people in the world would consider an arch conservative, non innovation mega billion dollar company, and I, I and and it's it's that that needs to start happening. Us is it, pulling is into- it the Trump
3: Foundation. <laughs>
4: I, 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 I hope you think a little bit more of my integrity. <laughs> oh <laughs> <laughs> my
2: gosh. <laughs> <laughs> um, now the, now the gloves come off.
0: We've
4: got no, some I'm, good, we've got some good
3: clips for uh, Twitter and LinkedIn now, Jojo. Yeah, no. <laughs> oh,
0: I no. Yeah. And I'll say it for you, Marcus. I think that, that um, another thing that, that should not be tolerated are false claims either not in terms, not just in terms of FDA approval and, and getting clearance to market claims of, of efficacy, but claims that that skew history and that that you know, well, well, it's they not leave just about one skewing history, out. Dodo.
4: It's not just about skewing history. There are two major risks here where I really do get irate about my competitors using language that is not appropriate. Number one, and that goes straight to Elon Musk, when you mismanage the expectation of a patient population, that is not okay. I mean, you can conjure up where this technology will go and how great electric vehicles will one day be and be our mainstay. You can do the same for BCI. But when you mismanage the expectation of patients, people who are in dire need and have no other choice, and you are not clear with them that this is going to take time or that this will happen in this and that manner, most likely, that is just not acceptable in my opinion. And the second thing is taking risks that will jeopardize the environment for us all. If you put stuff out there and say, "Oh, my device can do this," and you're not honest about it, when really you're achieving that efficacy through so whatever assistive technology or other thing, that again, you're now you're now risking it for all of us because the FDA is not stupid. Plus, the FDA isn't even the enemy here. They should be the collaborative entity. It's a regulated industry, accepted for crying out loud. But now push everything else to do what you think needs to happen and needs to needs to needs to go our way, right? But the FDA is there. There are, we see them as a partner. We are going to move them up like a staircase. We're going to move them up. We're going to convince them that this is the way to do it. That's the way to do it. Step by step by step, seeing them as the enemy. I don't know where that's going to get us. All that will happen is they'll close it down and they have the right to do it. And then where are we? Then, yes, you just put a screeching halt yeah. to what could have been an absolutely fantastic- We just got an
1: answer to the question that we didn't even ask, Marcus, but we just slipped in through through some of the way that we were asking. That's great. There you go.
0: And and you're actually far more of a gentleman than I would be because I, I, I agree. <laughs> you took
2: on the really- I, I wanted to, to add a piece after the rousing uh, soliloquies from, from Matt- and Marcus, and just say, as a venture investor and someone who has invested in both invasive and non-invasive brain computer interfaces, like now is the time, right? I mean, I think you've heard uh, in this discussion that really we're in, in engineering land Right, the scientific risks have been retired for quite some time, especially for the two companies that we're talking to today. And um, you know, I know there's a lot of folks. I use the I use the clever, uh, some, somewhat uh, tongue-in-cheek term BCI curious. I use my air quotes here. You know, there are a lot of people who are who are interested in in getting into the space. And and I think you know, from a venture perspective, my argument is like now is the time right because if you have the wherewithal to do the diligence and to uh, understand the companies and the progress that they've made uh, there is no reason uh, to be sitting on the sidelines first of all uh, for the future that we're predicting their valuations will become quite expensive uh, and you are uh, not going to get the price uh, price point that you want but i think all of these uh, companies you know in particular blackrock and paradromics are um, sitting at a spot where they are extremely uh you know good investments at this point and there are of course others you know in the market as well and I just want to emphasize from my perspective as somebody who's kind of lived this journey along along with my colleagues here it's a very transformative experience to go from somebody on the other side to uh being in the in the funding position and and um you know having the uh, very um, you know, privilege to to be able to invest in these spaces and um, kind of just want to emphasize that now is the time. So
4: I can only echo that from a different angle. Uh, people come to me for career advice quite frequently. And I had the son of um, an individual I've known for a long time who started at Bell Labs many, many decades ago, come to me and ask for career advice and whether he should consider the telco industry. And I said, just look at what your dad did. You went into Bell Labs, and from there, an entire career built because of what happened in that industry. And neuro and neurotech is exactly there today. Whatever you do, take a little bit of a specialized field on neuro. Look at software engineering, hardware engineering, whatever it is that you're going to pick, in quality or regulatory. But this industry um, is where it's going to be happening, and it's, it's happening now. So I, I, I couldn't yeah. say better than you did just now. Yeah,
2: yeah. I. I'm late for my next meeting. No, I was just going to say thank
0: you all so very much. This is, <laughs> exceeds expectations. Yeah. Amy
2: would love to talk
3: about neurotech, but she actually has to get into a hot crypto deal. <laughs>
2: <laughs> a pox on you. A pox on you. <laughs> Matt Angle. Oh, my gosh. This is amazing. I hope you edit down to something extremely spicy. So, oh, yeah. I hope it is okay, okay
1: everyone. One. Thank I hope you. no one
2: gets canceled as a result of this. <laughs>
1: uh, I might be the one who's getting canceled from the entire uh, neurotech community. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. Uh, I think so. we all
2: I think we all covered it. This is amazing. Thank you for including right. me. Yes, I've wanted to be thank on a Scraps podcast for, for quite some time right. now. So this oh, God. my dream come true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're definitely using that as a trailer.
3: That's good.
4: <laughs> Thanks a lot, Anna. All right, Thanks. Thanks a lot. All right guys. See
0: uh, bye. bye. See you. Thank you very much. Bye. Have a great bye. day. Bye.